Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 8. And we'll read from verse 23 to 27 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marvelled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Father, we thank you once again for this morning. We thank you for the time that we have already spent enjoying your fellowship and your presence. So we pray this morning also that uh, as the word goes forth, that our hearts will be ready to receive it. Father, I pray that you would use me for that purpose, that I would preach the truth in love, with grace, with my speech seasoned with much salt, but that I may be bold in the truth also, that we may be challenged to live further for you, that we may see you more fully, and that we may be challenged to live more for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One day, a minister sat in the office of his church to meet anyone who might have spiritual difficulties, and only one person came in. What is your difficulty? asked the minister. The man answered, My difficulty is the ninth chapter of Romans, where it says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Yes, said the minister, there is great difficulty in that verse. But which part of the verse is difficult for you? The latter part, of course, said the man. I cannot understand why God should hate Esau. The minister replied, The verse has often been difficult, but my difficulty has always been with the first part of the verse. I never could understand how God could love that wily, deceitful, supplanting scoundrel Jacob. There are different ways of looking at the same things, aren't there? Now, if we ask ourselves honestly, each of us probably struggles with the concept or the thought of why God would love me. Isn't it interesting that before you're saved, you don't struggle with that idea? You don't care about that idea? But then when the gospel is presented to us and we realise how much God loved us that he sent his only begotten son to die for us on the cross and he went to all these lengths, what we struggle with as Christians is not, is not um, uh, whether you know, God is just and all those things because we know he's just. We struggle with the idea of why he still loves me. And we do that because we look at our own lives and we see how inadequate we are. Have you ever struggled with that thought? Because I know I have. When I look at my life, I now tell myself, why does God continue to love me? What type of love is this? 
that requires so much patience, so much forgiveness, so much loving kindness and grace and mercy. What type of love is this that continues to keep on when my love goes up and down like a yo-yo? I used to think girls were um, mean when I was young. When I was in primary school, I think I was even great prep, I used to watch these girls and they'd get around in a circle and they would pick a flower and they'd do this and they'd pull all the petals out of that flower until there was absolutely nothing left. And my, thought, my first thought was, how cruel are these people? Like, what are they? They're just putting tormenting flowers and, and... Until I, one day I got close enough to hear what they were actually doing. You know what they were doing, won't you, don't you? You've done it, haven't you? Hands up, he's done it. All the men have done it. <laughs> so they were saying, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me. And if you were lucky enough to land on the right pedal at the end, guess what? He loved you. I must admit, I've actually done that myself. And for Mary, it always worked out that she loved me. So it was all right. <laughs> um, why have I brought that up? I brought that up because, you know, in our Christian lives, after we get saved... We tend to do that with our own lives, don't we? He loves me. Yeah, he loves me. And he loves me not. I messed up. He loves me. He loves me not. And we're hoping. Sometimes we just sit there hoping that we're going to land on the right pedal at the end. And we're hoping that our lives will just end up at the right time where I'm in right fellowship with him because I don't want to when he comes to take me home to be in the wrong relationship with him. Do you, do you not go through the same thing sometimes that I go through? In the story today, what I'm telling you is it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that. Because we don't do that with our own parents, do we? Do you ever do that with your wife? or your husband, or your mum, or your dad. We never do that with them. We never go, they love me, or oh, now they don't love me, or oh, now they love me, now they don't love me. Why do we do it with God? It's because we doubt his character. But I'll tell you something this morning, to start off with. I'll give you the answer from the first, from the first go. That if your parents continue to love you, even when you mess up, God loves you more than your parents. If your wife, men, puts up with you, with all your problems, with all your smelly socks and all, and all the things that you do, if they put up with us, and guess how much God can put up with us? A lot more. And the same thing with you women. In the story today, we find something very interesting. Jesus had given the greatest sermon that had ever been heard. He went up on top of a mountain and he preached to thousands and thousands of people. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. And many, so many people were inspired by the speech 
by this by this great uh, by this great speech that he made, great sermon that he gave, that many of them wanted to follow him. Many of them turned and began and said to themselves, "I want to follow that man." So then, as Jesus came off the mountain, he healed a leper, he killed a centurion's daughter, and people were just flocking to him. They saw what he was doing, and they were inspired to be with him. And just before this particular passage, some men had come to Jesus and said, uh, we'll follow you. Turn to, look at verse 19. Go back to verse 19. Because Jesus was never one to mince words, was he? He was never one to, 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 to uh, put the uh, rose-colored glasses on. He told them exactly as it was. It says in verse 19, A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes of holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. And Jesus was plainly telling whoever wanted to follow him that if you chose to follow him, that you would most likely forsake the comfort of a home because he didn't have a home. He would travel from place to place. You would also forsake the refuge of a family. Do you get that? To follow him meant to depend on him, to trust him in all things, even though the very things that we would take for granted today as they did 2,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago um, might not be available to you at all. The support of a family and a home that you can just go back to every night and just put your feet up and relax. Now, I don't know too many things that would shake the confidence of a person that if someone was to tell, was to tell them they may never have a home or the fellowship of an earthly family, but Jesus was one, never one to paint a pretty picture about something that wasn't real. That's a test of trusting someone, isn't it? Being ready to forsake the type of normal life and back up everyone takes for granted in their lives. And we did a, a men's study yesterday, and one of the one of the lessons that the um, one of the, the particular points the author made was don't have a backup plan when it comes to God. Don't have a backup plan. In other words, oh, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to go and, you know, I've got this ready to go on the side. The real test of following the Lord is not to have a backup plan. It's to once you put your faith and trust in Him, not to have something ready else, ready to go on the side. That's a test of trust. So in the light of this teaching, Jesus decides to enter into a ship and His disciples decide to follow Him in there. So he goes into the ship and he's like, okay, we're going to go in there with him. And in verse 24 it says, And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. The situation turned pretty bad. The storm, and this, the words that are used here are great tempest. Hmm, tends to probably, in, in our, our modern day language, tends, tends to seem a bit, a, bit, um, a bit light. It was a huge storm. Okay, It was brewing and it was so strong, the waves were actually coming over the ship and engulfing the ship that they were in. So you can imagine what it was like on, on the top deck 
they were running around, there would have been a lot of screaming, running around, toing and froing, pulling ropes, doing this, doing that, to try to keep, keep everything sort of uh, uh, under control. But Jesus was in the lower part at the back, just having a good old sleep. <laughs> so his disciples got to a point where they thought to themselves, this is, isn't working. And these guys were like seasoned fishermen. They knew, they knew a boat. They knew what it was capable of. They knew this particular sea. It was their backyard. So when they came running to Jesus, there was something wrong. So that says that, and his disciples in verse 25, his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. They would have probably used even louder words than that. The disciples were obviously concerned that their very lives were at risk because they chose to woke Jesus up and pleaded with him to save them. They obviously believed that he could do something to, to get things under control. And when Jesus wakes up and sees what's happening and he hears their cries for help, he makes an interesting statement. He says to them, Why are you fearful? A year of little faith. Then he arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was calm. Now, this question is not a question that, as Brother Alan shared with us uh, one morning, this is one of those questions that wasn't expecting to get an answer, if you know what I mean. This is a question to tell them off, to say, this is something you should be, you should not be doing, okay? So, when he, says, when he says, why are you fearful, he's saying, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Well, Lord, um, you see, we've been fishermen for a very long time. We know when things are, are bad. And we know when our lives are at risk. We've measured the amount of water coming into this boat. And if we leave this go for too much longer, this boat is either going to capsize or sink. And Jesus asked this question as if they had missed one obviously important point, though. Even though they knew all that, they had forgotten one really crucial and critical point. What are you afraid of? What are you fearing? So the Buddha thought to themselves, we came to you to save us. We've come to you. We, we knew you could do something to rescue us. Doesn't that show some faith that we've come to you to, to save us? Yes, but you've still missed a critical point. You should not have been fearful in the first place. Why? Why? The boat was about to probably sink. There were waves coming over the boat. These guys knew what they, were, what they, what they knew about boats. What type of faith did he expect them to actually have? A faith that says that when I, Jesus, am with you, there is nothing to fear. When I'm with you, you have nothing to fear. Not waves, not wind, not people, not anything. When I'm with Jesus, I trust that he loves me. I trust that he knows how to protect me. I trust that he knows and he cares for me and he knows what's going on. And he has everything under control. Because... God will not let his plan be thwarted by a simple storm. 
Because I trust that Jesus is the Messiah. I trust that God's plan cannot be upset by something so little as that. If Jesus loves me and I put my faith into his hands and my life into his hands, then there is no way in this world or in the next that he will ever lose me. That's a type of faith that he deserves. A faith that doesn't question whether he knows what's going on, whether he's in control of a situation, whether he's loving me or not, whether he really cares about me or not. This is exactly the type of lesson that is, lessons the disciples needed at that particular point in their lives. They did not fully understand who they were in the ship with. They were in that ship with the Son of God. Oh yeah, he was the Messiah, but they didn't quite comprehend that this fellow that they were with, even though he was sleeping, held the very, the very atoms of the universe together. This was no ordinary man. So it says in verse 26, And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, that situation, what happened there, caused them to ask a question when he saved them. It caused them to ask the right question. What type of man is this? The winds and the sea obey him. This is a lesson that we all need. We all face storms, don't we? I think you understand what sort of storms I'm talking about. It's not the storm when you're sitting in a boat. It's the storms of that, we, that we face in our own lives. There is something that God does... Not always do, though, with these storms. He doesn't take them away from us. But sometimes he makes us go through these storms. I'm sure that he has averted many storms in our lives. I'm sure there are many times that, that a storm was brewing and coming up and he was able to stop it, and he did. I'm sure there are many times in our lives that we've ripped up our own storms. And if you probably look back at your life, you'll probably realise that we were the ones doing the whipping. We did that whipping by selfish decisions, by thinking of ourselves before him, by not trusting in who he was, so we jumped in and made decisions that we weren't supposed to make. And we messed things up completely. Because of fear, we went, we went and did something that was um, contrary to what he would have us to do. I'm sure there are many, many ways that we created the storms in our lives. And unfortunately, when we create storms, we, we have a, a fantastic tendency of dragging other people into those storms as well. But the Lord allows us to go through storms in order that he might reveal himself more fully to us. That we might see him for who he is. As the disciples discovered... But also that our faith in his character and his incredible love for us would strengthen within us and make us stronger and bolder for him when we see him in the midst of the storm. Makes us bolder. You see, the next time the, 
the disciples would have been in the boat with him and a storm was brewing, how much fear do you think they would have had knowing that their Saviour was there with them? They would have become bolder. Even Sigmund Freud understood this. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern-day psychology, understood this simple truth. And he got a lot of other stuff completely wrong. But he wrote something simple, which said, how bold one gets when one is sure of being loved. How bold one gets when one is sure of being loved. He got that right. Congratulations. When a person is sure that the love of their saviour toward them is unflinching, unwavering, when you know that you are loved and the one who loves you has power beyond measure, how bold will you be for him? You're able to face any of life's challenges, any person who comes against you, anything the devil can throw at you. Not only can you be sure that the Lord has everything under control, but that everything, as the scriptures say, works for good, works together for good when you love him. And even though we only see certain parts of circumstances and sometimes we try to create the full picture, trusting in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is trusting that he sees the whole thing, all the circumstances, and he understands exactly where we are and what we're going through. Peter discovered the same thing just a few chapters on. Go to Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. And we'll see another time when the winds and the waves started whipping up again in the same place. Look at Matthew 14, verse 22. And straightway... Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him on the, uh, unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves for the wind was contrary. There we go, we're back in the same place. But he's not in the ship with them this time. Verse 25, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come out unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Je and Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship, came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. They found their answer, didn't they? In the previous passage, they asked the question, What type of man is this, that actually even the winds and the waves obey him? Now, they've got the answer. 
they had found the conclusion to their, to their question that they asked a few chapters ago. You really are the son of God. You can walk on water. You, you're able to control the weather. It's interesting how many times we find ourselves in stormy situations only to learn some valuable lesson about the Lord and our faith in Him and where we are with that faith. And then these were seasoned fishermen who knew the waters and were, and were as comfortable in a ship as they were on dry land. But once again, Jesus told His disciples to enter into a ship, to cross the sea while He prayed. And when they were in the midst of this sea, the waves started tossing around. It says that in the evening, when He was praying by Himself, in the evening, right? Just praying by himself on a mountain. They were in a boat on their way to the other side. But then it says that at that time as well, the wind started whipping up and the waves started, started tossing the boat around. They weren't getting to where they were wanting to get to very quickly. And it says there that by the, see where it says there, by the fourth watch of the night. Do you know what the fourth watch of the night is? Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So these guys were on that boat for quite a while dealing with this thing. And I'm not sure whether there was any daylight or not at this particular time because if it was more to six, maybe the, the sun might have started rising. But if it was four in the morning or five in the morning, it might not have been any sun at all. In the midst of this storm, Jesus went walking out to them on the water. Now when they saw him walking on the water, they, it says they cried out for fear. They cried out for fear. You know that sort of crying out for fear is? like little girls that see a big spider right that's the sort of screaming they would have done they cried out for fear ah I didn't do it very well sorry what they thought they saw was a ghost they thought they saw a ghost walking on the water But it says in verse 27, But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Was Jesus' response to their, what was Jesus' response to their fear and dread? What, was he, what did he say to them? Be of good cheer. It is I, don't be afraid. Don't worry, be happy. It's me. Don't be afraid. You know something? When we're going through difficult times in our lives and it seems as if these storms and these winds are whipping up and our life seems to be going like this, being rocked from one side to the other. And when you think that, that things are slowing down, all of a sudden another wave comes, comes and hits you. Okay? Um, Jesus is there in the midst of that, fully in control. And he says, be of good cheer. I'm here. There's no need to be afraid. I'm here with you. And that's the response that we need when we're in the midst of our trials and tribulations. When we face scary situations in our lives and we can't understand what's happening or our circumstances aren't making sense or we can't see a few feet ahead of us, Jesus is in the midst of, of all this anxiety that we have. And he says, be a good cheer. It's me. I'm here with you. I need to be afraid. 
The disciples, in the midst of all this darkness and, and stormy situation and wind, didn't recognize Jesus. They thought he was someone else, or they thought he was something else, because of the lack of light. But he was right there, and they didn't realize it. Sometimes the darkness that surrounds us and the circumstances that engulf us uh, hide Jesus from us. Because we're not diligent enough to look for him. Because we don't have faith in him. Because we think sometimes that in the midst of our, of our most desperate situation, he isn't there. But if Jesus is not there in the midst of our worst situation, what type of a saviour is he? Is he there only when we're cruising along? No, Jesus is there in the midst of our deepest darkness. Jesus is there in the midst of our worst woes. The times in our lives when things are looking really bleak and bad. He is there with us. The problem is not him not being there. The problem is we not seeing him. Now, don't you love Peter in this particular story? Peter does his usual thing. Ready to jump out, ready to, ready to do something, ready, to, ready to, to prove and test and all these things. And it says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, if it's you, really you, bid me to come out to thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, Thou have little faith, why did, why did you doubt? When Jesus, with Jesus in his sights, with Jesus in front of him, when he recognized Jesus in Jesus saying, Come, I want you to come to me. Peter became so bold that he was ready to step out out of a boat onto waves and expected to walk on that water. Now that's bold. I must admit, I'm not sure. I might have been like the other disciples, maybe waiting in the boat. Huh? Even the force of gravity was yielded to Peter at that point. He couldn't sink until he started looking around at the circumstances that he was in again. So at one point he's got his eyes on Jesus, fixed, he's, he's, he's pumped. I'm going to my Lord. He's called me out to him. So he steps out of a boat. That first step would have been probably the most amazing thing that you could ever imagine. The boat, he would have had to step out over the boat. Like, can you imagine stepping on? Wow. That first foot planted firmly on water. And then as he's walking to him, he gets distracted by the things that are going on around him. He sees the wind. He sees the waves. And he begins to sink. He forgot who was in front of him. He forgot who was just standing there in front of him. And he began to sink. The other good thing we take from the story, apart from the, the, the very simple, the very simple um, lesson that if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can overcome, you can walk through the storms in life. You keep your eyes on Jesus. But you know something which is even more loving? Is that when Peter was distracted, 
He took his eyes off Jesus. Did Jesus let him sink? No. Jesus didn't let him sink. Jesus' hand was there ready to grab him. Sometimes we think to ourselves, when we, when we are distracted, when we want to see Jesus and we can't, we struggle to see him, we think that he's letting us go. But he never will. He never will let you go. Despite how blind you might be to your circumstances or to him being there with you. Sometimes we believe we have to do everything right and everything perfectly correct unless Jesus will let us go and punish us. But the reality of it is that Jesus actually knows our weaknesses. He knows my frailties. He was the one who saved me. And he's always there to hold us if we fall. It doesn't depend on our strength. It doesn't depend on our power. It doesn't depend on our confidence. It doesn't depend on anything that has to do with us. It depends on his character, his faithfulness, his power, his love. His love for you and me is the calm in the midst of the storm. The anchor in the midst of the waves in life. When I first got saved, there was a nice song that um, that I used to like. And the author, sorry, the, uh, the artist wrote these words. But he who spoke peace to the waters, tis more for our hearts than the waves. That's true. We must remember that Jesus cares for us so perfectly, so lovingly. Like a perfect husband cares for his wife. We have a father who loves us so perfectly as a perfect father who cares for his children. We have a Holy Spirit that we've been sealed with who even prays for us when we don't know how to pray. And it says that he is our comforter. We sang that this morning. God cares for us. So when we struggle with things in our lives, We need to remind ourselves that we are not alone. If you are a child of God this morning, you've been adopted into his family, God will not let you go. God is is less likely to let you go than you are of letting your own children go when they misbehave. Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought of your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And the answer to that question is, yes. In God's eyes, we are much better than them. We are his children. We would be wise to remind ourselves that it is not us who search for God and found him but rather him who came looking for us when we were running away from him. Because the Bible tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. We weren't found. We didn't go chasing after God. God came chasing after us. And when he has caught us, do you think that he will lose us? The answer is no. He will not lose us. 
What he has spent so much time and so much effort and so much love to win in the first place, he will never abandon because we are the apple of his eye. Turn to John chapter 16 with me. John chapter 16, verse 32. I want to share something interesting with you. Now, look at this. Behold, John 16, 32. Behold, the hour cometh. Yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered. And he's talking to his disciples here, okay? Every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And look what he says in the next verse. These things I, I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Did you understand what he just said? He gathers his disciples around and he says, there's going to come a time now, and it's, it's almost here, when they're going to arrest me and they're going to, they're going to drag me into a court situation... And you know, guys, you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to leave me. You're going to leave me all alone. Does he rebuke them? Does he say, you bunch of good-for-nothing disciples, you promised to follow me all the way? You've, I've been with you for three years. You know who I am. And now in the, in the, the worst time in my life, you're going to leave me. You're going to betray me. You're going to abandon me at the hardest time of my life. Do we see these words here? No, he actually says, actually says, I've spoken to you these things that you may have peace. And have good cheer. Be happy. Even though he was telling them they were going to abandon him. You know why? It wasn't. Their responsibility, it wasn't their responsibility. This whole thing was not hinging on them and their faithfulness. It was hinging on his faithfulness. It was hinging on his authority. It was hinging on him to complete this thing. And yes, they would abandon him. They did. They all scattered. They all left. And the one who walked on that water towards him denied him three times and says, I don't even know the guy. I don't know this guy. You like that? How would you or I deal with that? If someone denied even knowing us, when we were going through the most difficult time of our lives, we wouldn't deal with it too well, would we? Yet Jesus actually forgave them and, told, and said, I'm forgiving you in advance because you're going to do this. But you know something? I'm never alone. I'm with my Father. My Father's always with me. And it's not because you abandoned me that this thing's going to fail or whatever. It doesn't depend on you because I've overcome the world. I've done it. So your rest, your peace, your cheer should depend on me, not you. So this morning, let me ask you a question. Where does your peace come from? Where does your good cheer come from? Does, it, do you, does your peace and your rest rest in you? How good you are? How much you've achieved? Let me ask you that question. Because if it is, then you have a saviour other than the one that, that we've been called to follow. 
you've become your own saviour. And I'll share something with you this morning. You are not going to do a very good job at it. If your rest, if your peace, if your joy doesn't come from Jesus Christ, from Him and who He is, if your eyes aren't focused on Him but rather focused on yourself and the circumstances around you, you will fail every time. You will sink as quickly as Peter started sinking into that water. And he says to them, in this world I know you will have tribulation. I know that you'll be persecuted because of me. But I want you to have peace. I want you to be of good cheer because I've already come, overcome the world and it's me that you need to be focusing on. No judgment because they had abandoned him. But talk of peace and good cheer. The faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ does not depend on our dependability. The truth is that his love for us is constant in a world of turbulence. We can have cheer because he has not only overcome the world, and that overcoming means to continue to love us despite letting him down. This is the amazing love that we have from our Saviour. The love that he has for us should be a source of encouragement to us during difficult times because that source of love does not end. When we understand how much we are loved by him, then we can truly love others as well who are experiencing storms in their lives. We can be a comfort to them. But if you cannot be comforted by God, if you don't find your faith, your peace, your joy in Jesus Christ, then don't expect to be a source of joy and peace for anyone else. Jesus simply says to us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's our standard and he never stops loving. The love of God is an amazing source of comfort when we do experience hardship in our lives. Because he's clearly told us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And my brethren, it's better to carry this truth around, this simple truth around like, like children in our hearts than to read a thousand books, a thousand textbooks. It will reap benefits into eternity for you and for those around you. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1-3 as we close up with the final passage here. Second Corinthians 1.3. We looked at this, this, this passage yesterday, and we're only looking at two verses today. We looked at this yesterday in the men's leadership group. And it says there, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all tribulation, that we, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Who is the source of our comfort? God is a source of our comfort. He is a source of all comfort. Not just some, not just a little bit, not just when we think we need him. He's a source of all comfort for us. The question that we have, we need to ask ourselves, is this a reality in my life? Is this real for me? Or do I just give him that title and say, he is a God of all comfort? And we go and find our comfort somewhere else. 
Do I actually believe it when I begin to go through uncertainties and trial? Is it, is it the first one I go to? Or is he my last one on the list when things are so bad and I've exhausted all my other avenues of finding peace, I go to him last? In what type of tribulation is the Lord a comfort to us? He's a comfort to us in every and all tribulation. There is nothing where he is not a comfort to us. And what is the fruit of God's comfort in our lives? When you experience the comfort of God in your life, when you're going through difficult circumstances, the Bible tells us here in verse 4, who comforted us, us in all tribulation, that so we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. Do you understand? God comforts us that we might be able to comfort others. The, the fruit of, of having the comfort and the love of God in your life is that you can be a comfort to people around you when they need it. It should lead us to comfort others as well. The ability of God, and this is probably phrased wrong, because it's not his ability, his ability never changes. But the ability of God to comfort us in times of distress is directly proportional to the love that you believe that he has for you. Do you understand that? It's directly proportional to how much you believe he loves you. If you don't believe he loves you, you will get no comfort. Is that fair enough? If you believe he loves you this much, that's the amount of comfort you're going to get. But if I believe that my Saviour loves me beyond my understanding, and he's proven that love time and time again, then the comfort I'm, I'm ready to receive is going to be this much. That's why the Bible tells us that there is no fear in love. No fear. But perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You know, when I was younger, I'm telling you a lot of stories when I was younger. I'm probably setting myself up here. Um, when I was younger, I was living at home. I went through a, a period of being afraid of the dark. I don't know, anyone ever gone through that period? Yeah. Probably watched too many scary movies when I was young. Anyway, I went through a period where I was actually afraid of the dark. I was afraid when my mum would tell me to shake the, um, the tablecloth out the back and it was dark outside, I'd be shaking and looking like this, just in case someone jumped out of the bushes. Okay? I was scared of walking down the street by myself. I was scared um, even at night, you know, when I was going to the bathroom and you had to walk the long, long corridor to get to that, to that bathroom. That was a scary thing sometimes. But there were times when I had absolutely no fear at all. None whatsoever. And do you know what it was? When my dad was with me. When my dad was with me, whether I was outside, inside, down a street, whatever, my dad was walking along the road with me, or he was around me, I'd have no fear at all. Now, why would I have no fear? It was, I had great confidence in my father, didn't I? I trusted him. I had faith in him. I had faith that he could handle anything that might come up. Any guy who wanted to jump out of the bushes, any monster or anything like that, my dad could take care of it. But it wasn't just that. 
it wasn't just an ability that he had to take care of that situation, but that he, that he loved me enough to want to protect me if anything ever came up. Do you understand? Because I know, I know that if something ever came up, I could see my father, I could see in my mind's eye, my father's first concern would be to protect me. That's why I had no fear when I was with my dad. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. I knew my father loved me and I had no fear. So this morning, when you're going through the dark places in your life, when you're going through difficult circumstances and you can't see, how much do you believe Jesus loves you? How much fear do you have in the midst of these trials? Because the amount of fear you have tells you how much you believe your Saviour loves you. If you have torment in your life today, if you have fear upon fear, it's because you struggle to understand how much God actually loves you. And if you struggle to believe that, then you will struggle to love him in return. Because we love him because he first loved us. So you will struggle to love him back if you don't believe he loves you that much. This is our challenge. And it, be it begins with believing and having faith that Jesus loves us. Elisha Hoffman wrote in 1887, What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. I would encourage you to turn to the Lord if you're struggling with something in your life today with full assurance that he loves you beyond your understanding. There is nothing in your life that can tear you away from him and his love for you. There is nothing that he cannot handle because he's a lot bigger than all of us. His shoulders are a lot bigger. His love is a lot wider. His grace is a lot deeper. His mercy is unbelievable. And he says, I love you. I care for you. I gave my life for you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. As someone once wrote, I would rather be in a boat with Jesus in the midst of the storm than safe on the shore without him. God bless you. Thank you.